0: Our passage for this morning is 1 Kings chapter 19. Let us read together 1 Kings chapter 19. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank And lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food. Forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire, the sound of a low whisper, and when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint. Hazael, to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Moholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with the 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and mother and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Her name is Susan. My wife and I met Susan shortly after we moved to Korea when we started our english business susan was looking for a native english teacher that she could share some of her students with we met susan for the first time at her apartment and while we were there i noticed a cross on one of her bookshelves and so i i asked her if she went to church And she replied that she used to, but hadn't for a long time. I told her briefly about what I do. told her where we go to church, why I was in Korea. And she asked if we could meet her that weekend so that she could talk to me and share her story with us. And over the next few months, we would meet with Susan. And Susan would share with us her story of being hurt by a church, her story of being estranged from her entire family, her deep loneliness and darkness that she was revealing to us, We're driving her towards ending her own life around the time that she met us. She was totally alone. And over long meals and late nights, we would meet with her and we would encourage her with the clear gospel of God's grace The truth of his promises, the truth of his precepts, found in his sure word. Susan's struggles are not unique to her, they're not unique to South Korea. At times, life in this fallen world is a wilderness. We put one foot in front of the other, each step with just enough strength for itself. And it's in these wilderness experiences where we can feel empty and yet full of fear. In these wilderness experiences, we feel numb We're no longer interested in what were our greatest interests. We're we're surrounded by people, and yet all alone. Surrounded by heavy air. We no longer look forward to anything. You wonder, how can you keep making it through the day only to lie down, only to wake up the following morning to do it all over again. Like Elijah, in these wilderness experiences, we doubt that the Lord is God. We doubt His power. We doubt His word. We doubt His faithfulness. And in that doubt, fear takes root which leads to despondency, which leads to depression, which leads to despair. And all we can see are the effects of our own weakness and the weakness of life in this broken world. But despite what the surrounding culture might say, Seeing and acknowledging our weaknesses as God views them is a good thing. Often God exposes our weaknesses so that we will depend upon his grace. He exposes our weaknesses so we'll depend upon his strength and his power, not only for our justification, but for all our sanctification. In 1 Kings chapter 19, we see that the Lord is faithful to his plan for our salvation. The Lord never loses his own. and Therefore, we can know and believe and trust in his great grace in Christ. And we can depend upon him and we can depend upon his great strength. From the opening of chapter 17 to the closing of chapter 18. The supreme authority and faithfulness of the Lord has been building to a climax. And up to this point, God has been demonstrating his superiority primarily through Elijah we would be uh, we were tempted to assume that 1 kings chapter 17 through 19 is dominated by Elijah after all he's God's unique prophet however a closer look of these chapters reveal that they're not about Elijah They're about the God who acts in history. These are really stories about God and what he is doing through his people, for his people and for his glory. These Elijah stories are part of a larger section of scripture that takes place during some of the most trying times in the history of the nation of Israel. In the events of chapter 17, God demonstrated his control over all things. He demonstrated his faithfulness. He demonstrated his provision and his power. He demonstrated that we can trust and obey him in trying times. God is demonstrating through his prophet that he is mighty, that he is able to save. In 1 Kings 18 opens with Elijah's meeting with Obadiah, who feared the Lord greatly. And in this meeting, Obadiah recounts to Elijah what he did when Jezebel killed the prophets, that he hid a hundred prophets of the Lord in a cave and he provided for them bread and water. Elijah then instructs Obadiah to set up a meeting for him with King Ahab. But Obadiah is reluctant. He's already suffered a lot and he doesn't want to take any risks with Elijah being a no-show. But Elijah swears by the Lord of hosts that he will meet with Ahab. Ahab. And so he gets the meeting through Obadiah. When Ahab meets Elijah, Ahab accuses Elijah of being the troubler of Israel, chapter 18, verse 17. And then Elijah reveals the irony of Ahab's accusation with his rebuke that it's in fact Ahab and his father's house that have in fact been troubling Israel. Because they are the ones who have forsaken the Lord. They have followed the Baals. Elijah, Elijah then challenges Ahab to arrange a showdown at Mount Carmel between the prophets. Which, is really, which really turns out to be a showdown between the one true and living God and the false gods Of the land. And more than that, this showdown is a call for the people to choose whom they will worship, whom they will follow. And after much chaos, Elijah's meditation prevails, and the delusion of the false prophets is obvious. The Lord comes in great power and fire. Conclusion, there is only one true and living God. And in keeping with Deuteronomy 13 and 17, Elijah orders the death of the false prophets, seeking to purge the evil from the land. And chapter 18 closes with the return of the life-giving, life-saving, merciful Gracious reign from God. This was Old Covenant reformation. This is what the presence and grace of God looked like. This is what repentance in faith looked like. It was confession and trust the favor of the Lord had returned in the hand, the power of the Lord was on Elijah. But, as is often the case in our own lives, we go from the highest of the highs to the lowest of the lows. And up to this point in the stories of Elijah, Elijah has been presented to the earliest audiences as a great prophet of the Lord. And this would have left hearers to wonder if perhaps this Elijah was the prophet of the Lord that was promised in Deuteronomy 18. The prophets of Israel belonged to the line of promised prophetic successors to Moses. And in the context of forbidding the people of God to follow the people of the land, God promised to give them true prophets who would speak to them on behalf of God. God promised to provide these prophets, culminating in the prophet, so that his people would always have true religious knowledge. He promised to provide the prophets and the prophet to combat the false religious knowledge that they would encounter in the land. And after we read 1 Kings 17 and 18, it's not difficult to imagine people wondering if this Elijah is the prophet. However, when we come to 1 Kings chapter 19 verse 3, a very very different Elijah emerges. And the audience is left wondering, what happened? Where is this all going? We're told in verse 1 of chapter 19 that Ahab informed Jezebel of all that Elijah did at Mount Carmel. That he killed all the prophets with a sword. In verse 2 we read that Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, pronouncing a curse on herself, saying that in a day's time, he will certainly be like the prophets he killed. And how does Elijah respond? How does the Elijah, who killed all the prophets with a sword, respond? Verse 3, he was afraid and he got up and he ran for his life. Despite all that the Lord had previously done, despite all that we see the Lord having accomplished in chapters 17 and 18, much hasn't changed. And now Elijah is in jeopardy of losing his own life. Jezebel's death warrant sends Elijah into a crisis of faith. And instead of responding in trust unto the Lord, instead of waiting upon the Lord's word to come to him and to move him, to direct him as the word of the Lord did in chapter 17 and 18, instead, he flees in fear for his life. And he flees to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. Beersheba is the southernmost border of the promised land. In other words, he's getting as far away as he possibly can. He's had enough. He's confronted by evil. He's driven by fear. Verse 4, he went into the wilderness a day's journey and came and sat under a broom tree. Enough was enough. He is physically and emotionally drained. He's feeling the effects of his own weaknesses in body and in soul. He's, uh, he's feeling the effects of that are brought on by his circumstances, perhaps worsened by his wandering into the barren wilderness further and further. Confronted by evil, driven by fear, extremely discouraged, in great despair, he flees the promised land. And here, Elijah begs for the Lord to take his life. He is gone from the highest of the highs to the lowest of the lows. How are you responding to the circumstances you find yourself in day after day, week after week? How are you responding? Is your response consistent with what God describes as good and right? Is the way you are responding drawing you closer to God? Is the way you are responding drawing you closer and closer to Christ as you trust him? Too often like Elijah here, we respond in ways that could be described as fearful and fleeing. Elijah's burned out. And yet it's in this story and in our own stories of seeming failure and weakness that we see the relentless faithfulness of God. Despite our own and often failures, God is ultimately the one who is orchestrating the salvation of his people. And this truth comes to a climax in 1 Kings chapter 19. God in his great grace intervenes. Elijah falls asleep under the broom tree and if he's anything like us in those lowest of low's moments. He was probably hoping never to wake up. Only to be woke up by this messenger, verse 5, that was touching him, said to him, arise, eat. And in verse 7, this messenger is identified as the angel of the Lord, who returned a second time And touched him and said, Arise, eat, for the distance is too long for you. What distance? We're not told if Elijah even knows where he's going. God hasn't told him to go anywhere like he did in chapter 17, like he did in chapter 18. But the angel of the Lord knew where he was going. The Lord knew where he was going. God is with Elijah in the wilderness. Just as he was with Israel in the same wilderness where Israel also failed. Elijah is no better than they were. But just as God sustained Israel in the wilderness with heavenly food, so too he sustains his needy servant. The Lord is once again meeting with and providing for and sustaining Elijah. Just as God miraculously cared for him and provided for him through the ravens and the widow. Here the Lord intervenes again, meeting his immediate needs, preparing him for his journey to the mountain of God. The second way the Lord intervenes in the life of his fleeing prophet is with meeting him and revealing his glory to him. Like other parallels between Elijah and Moses, this event reminds us of God's revelation to Moses on the same mountain, Horeb. It's here on this mountain in verse 9, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? As I mentioned, In the previous chapters, at previous times in Elijah's life, he was instructed where to go by the Lord. Elijah is the prophet to the northern kingdom, and he has fled far south of even the southern kingdom. And ironically, the first instruction the Lord gives him in verse 15 is to return to the farthest, most northern part of the northern kingdom, the polar opposite region from where he has fled. It's an understatement to say that Elijah is not where he belongs. And Elijah responds despairingly in self-righteousness and self-pity without even bothering to answer the question. The covenant made at Sinai has been forsaken. The prophetic office is on the verge of extinction. Nothing is going right. Therefore, divine intervention is necessary. In verse 11, the Lord instructs Elijah to go out and stand before him as he passes by. And as they did in Exodus 19, these great and terrifying, destructed forces of nature herald the coming presence of God. And the presence of God comes in a voice. And as soon as Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his fur cloak and he went out. And he stood in the opening of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Perhaps the repetition of the question is meant to emphasize that God didn't send him there. He's not where he's supposed to be. But God in his great grace intervenes and reveals to his prophet his power. He reveals to him his plan. And he reveals to him his promise. And Elijah, seemingly still despondent, seemingly still unmoved, blinded by the darkness of sin, blinded by failure, replies with the same response that betrays his belief that all of Israel was gone. All hope is lost. God has lost all his people. In verse 15 through 17, Elijah is instructed to return to the northern kingdom to travel through Ahab, Jezebel territory, far to the northwest. First, he's instructed to go to the wilderness of Damascus. To anoint Hazael as king over Aram. And then secondly, to anoint Jehu as king over Israel. And thirdly and lastly, he's instructed to anoint his successor, Elisha. Divine judgment was coming, and Hazael, Jehu, and Elisha would serve as the instruments of God's wrath. And yet, according to the power and plan of God, and probably much to Elijah's surprise at this time, a remnant of God's chosen people would remain. Those who had not submitted to or aligned themselves with Baal, but those who remained steadfast in their trust and worship of God, would survive this coming judgment. When it comes to Elijah, at this point in the stories of his life, There are more questions that remain unanswered than are answered. For reasons not recorded by the author, Elijah doesn't return to the wilderness of Damascus to anoint Hazael, nor does he anoint Jehu as king over Israel. What he does do after departing Horeb is he travels into the northern kingdom where he finds Elisha and he passed by him and curiously he throws his cloak on him. Do you see what he's doing? He's not going where God told him to, he's finding his successor as soon as possible. He's going to leave the rest up to him. After Elisha orders his earthly affairs, he followed Elijah and served him, we read in verses 20 and 21. And he succeeded him after Elijah is miraculously taken up into heaven, which we read about in 2 Kings chapter 2. God intervened. God never lost Elijah. He took him up. And in the seeming failure of Elijah, like the earliest audiences, we're left looking only to the Lord as our hope and our salvation. Even though Elijah was not the one His life and ministry in many ways in these stories foreshadowed what Christ would do and accomplish in his person and in his work. Despite the faithlessness of God's prophets, God's kings and God's people, the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob was faithful to his promises to preserve a people for his coming Messiah the prophet of God. I began by introducing you to Susan. Susan is doing much better now. She has a clearer understanding of the law and the gospel. Susan is still looking to Christ. God has not lost her. She's still his. She still struggles. She still needs a greater awareness of her great need for Christ's church. And maybe you're here this morning and you too need this great awareness of your great need for Christ and his church. I stand before you on behalf of of the king over all the earth. Flee to his only son and don't stop fleeing until you rest in him. And if you are trusting in the person and work of Jesus alone to save you from your sins, wherever you are this morning, Whatever wilderness of sin, whatever wilderness of failure you may have lost yourself in, God has not lost you. God is showing you your great weaknesses that when left to yourself, you are unable. When left to yourself, you are hopeless. God is showing you your great weaknesses so that in your great weakness you might flee to his great grace in Christ, that you might depend upon him and his great strength, that you might trust his promises and obey his precepts. In 1 Kings 17 through 19, we are reminded that the Lord alone is God. We are reminded that He alone has all power in heaven and on earth, that He will judge, that He will save. We are reminded that His word has never, and His word will never fail. In these stories, we are reminded That he is faithful. That he graciously intervenes, sustaining us, providing for us. We are reminded that the final prophet, the Lord Jesus, God's incarnate voice, being fully God, the very presence of God, is the only one through whom the Father has finally and fully revealed himself. God the Son is the final and only source of saving knowledge concerning the forgiveness of our sins in eternal life. We need him. We need a Savior who, when confronted with the great evil and sin of this world, In the face of his very own death, was not driven by fear to flee, but rather driven by love to die on our behalf. We need a Savior that says to the Father, yet not as I will, but as you will, your will be done. We need him who in his resurrection has power over our sin and death. We need him whose strength sustains us and preserves us in the wilderness of this life. We need the true and sure word of Christ week after week after week. So I plead to you, listen to him. Listen to the prophet, the Messiah, the one who says to you, Come unto me, and you will find rest for your souls. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, We thank you for your word that comes to us. Reminding our souls that we belong to you. Forgive us for our fear. Forgive us for our fleeing, Lord, and draw us back to you closer and closer. We thank you for Christ. Increase our faith. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.